Greetings to the brightest audience in the country. I'm your host, Dominic Enyart. Today, I'd like to do something a little bit different. I'm going to talk about a paradox here for a bit. It's been on my mind and I want to work it out. You know, I'm lucky that I have this show because I'm an extrovert. A lot of people misunderstand what being an extrovert means. They think if you're an extrovert, you're outgoing. But that's not exactly true. There's outgoing versus shy and extroverted versus introverted. And those are two different things. You could be a shy extrovert. You could be an outgoing introvert. Everyone knows what outgoing and shy are, but people are a little bit more fuzzy on extroverts and introverts. And it's a it's a pet peeve of mine that people don't fully get that. So to clear up the record, introverts generally get energy from being alone and that's how they charge up so to speak and being around other people drains them also they process things internally so they'll just sit down and think through a problem without saying anything extroverts on the other hand generally get energy from being around people and that's how they charge up being alone will usually drain an extrovert extroverts also process things externally so if there is an issue, they'll go to someone and they'll talk it through. My cousin, Maxime, is a really good example of this. And Maxime, I believe that that's a, a French name, and she's, she's not French, <laughs> thank goodness. No, just kidding. But she is from the Netherlands, and so that's, uh, it's, it's cool that she lives here in Colorado now. And she's a stay-at-home mom, and she's an extrovert, and when she has a problem say with her kids, for example, she'll call her husband, also my cousin, and just talk about the problem. And my cousin, it's funny, he'll get a call from her. And I've been on his end of the line when this happens. And she'll say, I have this problem. I don't know what to do. Maybe I could do this or that, or maybe, you know, whatever. And then without even needing anyone else to say anything to help her, she figures out the solution. And so... She'll have a phone call where she is the only one who's talking, and then she'll just be like, oh, figured it out, and then she'll hang up. And it's kind of funny. We tease her about it. But I say all, all of that just to illustrate my point that extroverts process things externally. You know, I mentioned outgoing introverts. My brother Nate is a good example of this. I personally used to be a shy extrovert. Now I'm more like my dad. We're both outgoing extroverts and getting us to shut up. That is the big problem my mom had. <laughs> no, just uh, just kidding. But I'm lucky, though, because I'm an extrovert and I have this show. So when I have something that I need to think through, I can talk about it here and process it. And so I think it usually will make for an interesting show, but it's also helpful just for myself. So I end up learning a lot when I do these shows. Really a lot of fun. It's a great job. I love my job. If you can become a talk show host and have that thrust upon you, highly, highly recommend it. So, okay, I mentioned a paradox I want to talk through. This paradox has a name originally called the Ship of Theseus or the Theseus Paradox. And there's a lot of different versions of this paradox. And I want to use it in a very roundabout way to illustrate an important point. It's a bit of a brain teaser, so put on your thinking caps, and we're going to be talking about the abstract here for a little bit. It's a little bit confusing. So to start, I want to start off nice and simple. Imagine you have a boat. You're at the beach, and you have a boat. It's a wooden boat, 
and the boat is on the beach and it's made up of 100 pieces of wood. Pretty simple, right? A boat, 100 pieces of wood. Cool. Good. We're in we're in sync here. Then one day at the beach, you pull up your truck and you have a giant pile of wood in the bed of your truck. And you get there, you know, nice bright and early in the morning and you take one piece of wood off the boat and then you put it right there on the beach. Just throw it right onto the ground on the beach. And then you take one piece of wood from your truck and you take that piece of wood and you attach it to the boat right where the original piece of wood used to be. So you with me so far? So the boat now has 99 original pieces of wood and one piece of new wood. Then one original piece of wood is sitting right there on the beach. Cool. Pretty straightforward so far. Now, I, I said that this is a brain teaser and it's an exercise, so prepare for this to get a little bit more confusing. I'm trying to keep it as simple as we can. Now, let's say you decide to camp on the beach for 100 days because, I don't know, you're working on your tan lines or, or something. So you, you decide you're going to be on the beach for 100 days. Then every single day you're at the beach, you take one piece of wood off the boat from the boat and you put it on the beach and then every single day right after that immediately after that you're very disciplined you go to your truck you grab a piece of wood and you use that piece of wood to replace the piece that you took away earlier that day so on day 10 for example the boat will have 90 pieces of original wood and 10 pieces of new wood on day 25, the boat has 75 pieces of original wood and 25 pieces of new wood. You're slowly putting new wood onto the boat. And then all the original wood you're taking off the boat is being put onto the beach. So this is where this starts to get a little bit tricky, so focus up here. It's now day 100, and you've taken off the last piece of wood, thrown that to the pile of all the other pieces of original wood on the beach. You go to your truck. You got what was conveniently the very last piece of wood on your truck. You had just enough. And you take that piece of wood and you stick that right onto your boat, right where the last original piece of wood was on the boat. And you now have a boat that is 100% new pieces of wood. There is no original wood left on the boat, 100 pieces of new wood. The question, and this is where it starts to get a little bit tricky, the question is, is the boat the same boat as when you started? A lot of people are quick to answer and say, yes, of course it is the same boat. But the problem is, what about it is the same? It's actually 100% different. 100% of the boat is new. So how could it be the same boat? But people say, of course, it's the same boat because it's the same shape. It does the same thing. It works the same. It sails just the same. But others will argue back and say, well, you have two cars and they do the same thing. They drive the same speed. They're painted the same color and that they're not the same car. That isn't what constitutes something being the same car. They're still different and it's the same with the boat. Now, people have argued for a long time about is the boat the same boat or a different boat for a long time. There's been very little agreement. And I personally am one of those people who's argued a lot about this question. But I'm going to throw an additional part into the equation that uh, some other people introduced. And that makes it a little bit more confusing. 
as if it's not confusing enough already. And I, as I do so, I want you to think really hard. And to keep it simple, for now, drop drop the question. Don't even be thinking about if it's the same boat or not. Just try and keep your mind clear and ready to go so we can figure out what's going on with this situation. So let's say as you've been working on your tan for those 100 days, you've been replacing the wood, you take the original pieces of wood and throw them on the beach. And little to your knowledge, because you're very distracted by your tan lines, as you throw your pieces of wood onto the beach, a pirate comes along and he steals your wood. One piece per day, he steals your wood. And one piece per day, he starts building an identical replica of your boat with the wood you threw on the beach. And after 100 days, you know, he's taking one piece of wood a day. After 100 days, he has built a boat completely indistinguishable from the boat you have been working on. So now there are two boats. My question, I'm going to ask you in the audience, you're the brightest audience in the country. Can you solve my question? My question is, which boat is the original boat? Is it the boat you've been working on that doesn't have any original wood? Or is it the pirate's boat, which has 100% original wood? You might say, well, it'd be my boat because it's been there all along. And someone else might counter, but 100% of the boat got transferred to the pirate's boat. So now the pirate's boat is 100% the original boat. And a third person, you know, when asked A or B, a wise man often chooses C, a third person might say, the original boat doesn't even exist anymore. And as you can imagine, this paradox has caused a lot of argumentation. Which boat is the original boat? Does the original boat even still exist? And I've thought for so long about this question. I don't know why. It is just so tricky to me. And typically the way my mind works is that when I have a problem... I try to find the underlying principles involved and build up from there to figure it out and to solve the problem. And, you know, maybe you guys in the audience can help me out with this one. If you'd like, send me an email, dominicandyour@gmail.com with your thoughts. But I, I've switched back and forth on this question more than any other question in my entire life. So in trying to figure out the answer to this question, you know, usually when I do a show on a hard question, I'd like to have an answer to give to the audience. But with this one, I I don't have an answer I'm fully sold on. So I'm trying to work it through with you here right now on the show with you guys. Because you guys are the smartest audience in the country. And I, I appreciate your support. And as I said, I'm trying to process this externally. And I am going to try and give an answer. And I want to see what you guys think of my answer. I want to see if my answer meets your standards the way I came up with this answer is by taking biblical and moral principles and trying to make a new situation that is easier to think through. And then perhaps that could serve as a guide to help think through the answer to this question and to figure it out. My father and predecessor, Bob Enyar, often said, you have an obligation to become an expert on morality. In other words, you should really, really understand morality. You should know exactly what is going on. And my dad taught 
me and my brothers a lot about morality, so I feel comfortable talking about it. It's right in my wheelhouse. And if I'm able to appropriately translate this paradox into a moral question where I feel more at home, then I could work through the issue with greater clarity. So like before, I'm going to ask you to put the thought experiment on hold just for a little while while I talk about some moral principles. And I know at first this will seem off topic, but I'm going to tie it back in, I promise. So moral principle number one, you know, we're, we're, you know, just take all that boat nonsense and shove it off to the side in your brain. We'll come back to it later. So moral principle number one is that you do not punish someone for someone else's crimes. For example, you do not punish the son for the crimes of the father. That's one reason why the argument for abortion in the case of rape fails. You don't execute the baby because his father was a rapist. You should execute the rapist. So you get that? You do not punish someone for someone else's crime. Moral principle number two. The primary function of a criminal justice system is not rehabilitation. A lot of people think that criminal justice systems are made for the purpose of taking, say, a violent criminal and changing them so that they are able to re-enter society. It is true that a good criminal justice system will do that. Good, good criminal justice systems take bad people and turn them into good people. That is true. However, that is not the primary function. The primary function of a criminal justice system is justice. If, if someone murders their neighbor, a good criminal justice will not worry about rehabilitating that person. A good criminal justice system isn't going to ask, how can we make this person work with society? A good criminal justice system would have that person executed because execution would be justice. And justice is the primary function of a criminal justice system. And justice takes precedence over rehabilitation. This leads into moral principle number three. There should be no statue of limitations. If you're unfamiliar with that term, it essentially means if you go this long without being caught, you cannot be punished for the crime. For example, let's say take insurance fraud. Maybe that has a five-year-long statute of limitations. So if you commit insurance fraud, you just have to escape for five years, and then you'll be fine. It's it's very evil. You know, by the way, if you murder someone and you kill them on Judgment Day, God is not going to say, well, it's been five years, so legally I can't punish you. That's not going to happen. You will be punished on Judgment Day, and there's going to be no statute of limitations on Judgment Day. Actually, this reminds me of a, a really funny story that a comedian said. I I was looking for this comedian's name. I'd like to credit him. I, I don't recall his name. If, if any of you guys know, let me know, because I'd like to credit the guy. But he has this story about how he was driving around in New York, and he gets pulled over. He said, this is the first time in 15 years I've been pulled over in New York. And so I, I don't get pulled over often. I'm a little bit nervous. 
and I, I don't know why I got pulled over. And the cop, he comes up to my door and he takes my license, my registration, all that stuff, goes back to his car. And then he comes back and he says, sir, could you please step outside of the car? And I thought to myself, what is going What Like, I did nothing wrong. What's going on? And so I asked him, I said, what's going on? He said, sir, please step outside of the car. So I said, all right. So I stepped out of the car and then he took me and he put my he put me against the car and then he put me in handcuffs and he said that I was under arrest and I had no idea what was going on. Maybe I was speeding a little bit, not not really. So I had no idea what was going on. And then he took me to jail and I spent a night in jail. Turns out my insurance about 13 years ago had lapsed for about two months and that was enough for me to be arrested and taken to jail overnight. Luckily, everything worked out. But the comedian who was telling this story said, out of curiosity, when I was done with this, this was in New York, I, when I got home, I went and I Googled in New York, what is the statute of limitations? And the statute of limitations in New York for murder was five years. You get that? So if the officer had pulled him over, he could have said, officer, five years ago, I murdered somebody. And legally, the officer would have had to say, well, have a nice day then and let him go on his way. But since his insurance had lapsed 13 years ago, he was taken to jail overnight, which just goes to show what a garbage system we have. And point being, the statute of limitations is ridiculous and it's evil and essentially its purpose is to deny justice. That's really the purpose of a statute of limitations. So if you take all of these three principles and you apply them to a bizarre situation, remember the boat where I'm, I'm trying to answer the, the boat question. I'll, ta I'll tie these in. If you take these principles and you apply them to a bizarre situation, let's imagine a guy and he gets mad at his wife and he kills her. Totally murder, unjustifiable murder. He was angry because, I don't know, she didn't make him eggs or something, so he, he shot her. And let's say after that happens, he goes on the run and the police try and catch him, but he escapes and he moves up to Alaska. Then as he's in Alaska, he lives like a monk on top of a mountain for 10 years. And as he does so, his entire personality changes. He becomes a new man. He finds Christ. That'd be, that'd be a good thing to do. He learns about the Bible. He's sorry he killed his wife. He doesn't like eggs anymore. Now he likes toast. And now he has a beard. His hair color changed. He looks different. Now he's in shape. He was kind of pudgy before. You could say that he's a new man. You know, he, yeah, yeah. He's a, a, a new man, a changed man. Then let's say after 10 years, the police, they, uh, they go on a hiking trip. And they find him up there at the top of the mountain. And after 10 years, they catch him. What should they do? The biblical answer is that that man should be put to death. Now, I'm not talking about an ex post facto law. That changes things. I'm talking about a fugitive who's been on the run for murder for 10 years and is then caught. That man, for murdering his wife, should be put to death. Should he be put in prison and should they try and rehabilitate him? No, he should be put to death. 
And I'm not going to spend a lot of time arguing for the death penalty on this show. If you want to check out our resource God and the death penalty, we'll have a link to that on today's show summary. But he should be put to death. Uh, but here is where the tie-in with the boat comes into play. So moral principle number one, you should not punish someone for someone else's crimes. Remember this guy who lived like a monk? He's a new man, right? Everything about him has changed. So should you punish the new man for the sins of the old man? Yes, because he is the same man. He is not a different person. He is the same person. Then moral principle number two, this guy shouldn't be rehabilitated. He should be put to death. This is a serious crime we're talking about. Then moral principle number three, just because this happened 10 years ago, that does not justify his actions that it happened a long time ago. He is still to be held accountable for his sin. Now let's wrap this all up with a nice little pretty bow on top. Back to the boat, right? Those principles have taught us that just because the aspects of someone change, you treat him, legally speaking, as the same person, even if 100% of him has changed. So with the boat there on the beach, I would argue the boat you've been working on is the original boat. Even though you took 100% of the original wood away, it is still the same boat. Just like the man on the mountain who changed 100% of his characteristics, he is still 100% the same person. And if that person is to still be legally held accountable, the boat is still to be considered the same boat. And now, if I'm correct about this, and if that still is the original boat, it solves the other boat question. Remember, the other question, is your boat or the pirate's boat the original boat? If it's if your boat is your, the original boat, then it's the original boat, and the pirate's boat is not the original boat. So I'm... I'm curious as to what you guys think. Do you guys find my logic compelling or is it not persuasive? I, I would want to know what you guys think. Email me, Dominic, and you're at gmail.com. I, I, I do really like my answer that, yes, your boat is the original boat. And I, I like it in part because this would be an example of knowing biblical principles and then knowing those biblical principles helps you to understand how the world works. So that's kind of my motivation for why I like my answer that it is the same boat. I'd love to know what you guys think. Now, I'm not going to claim that my answer here is objectively the correct answer. A lot of people have been, you know, wrestling with this paradox for a long time. And as I said, I, I myself am working this one out. I mentioned I want to make, I mentioned at the start of the show that I want to make a point in a very roundabout way. If you're a longtime fan of this program, you might recognize the name Brian Enyart Jr. He's been on the show a few times over the years, and he and I have discussed this paradox at length. And when we discussed it, we both disagreed. Uh, but he told me he believes the purpose of this paradox is to teach us that our language is insufficient and that there are ideas that our language simply is unable to convey. And we actually, we, we talked about it briefly before I went on the show today, and that got us sidetracked to talking about language itself 
And we started, we got past the boat paradox, and then we finished up just talking about language. And language is really, really interesting. You know, the everything that happened at Babel, that had, which, by the way, that name Babel, what a great fitting name, right? Babel, the word Babel, you know, just rambling, babbling. You can't understand someone who's babbling, and it's just such a fitting name for the word and the name. But we were talking about that before the show, and the language that you speak, it's really interesting. It quite literally changes the way you think. If you've ever read 1984, which, by the way, I started to read but never actually finished because the book has some degenerate stuff, probably better for your soul to not read that book because of the degeneracy. But in that book, the the party talks about thought crimes. And if anyone disagrees with the party, they have committed a thought crime and should be put to death. And so the party's goal is to get rid of all thought crime. In the book, they do it primarily by intimidation, you know, by killing someone if they commit a thought crime. But then also by trying to change the language. There's a big push to destroy all the, they called it, it was the uh, the old speak, as it was called, and replacing it with the new speak. So new speak instead of old speak. And the argument that Orwell made with that book was that if you can control the language that people use, you can control, in large part, how they think. And if you can control the language, not only can you make thought crime undesirable, but you can actually make it impossible. That's by dumbing down the language so much that you are unable to have words to express your disagreement. Fascinating stuff. And the book was very prophetic, especially with some of the stuff going on with COVID and with the gender ideology we're seeing today. But Orwell, so he wasn't completely insane when he came up with this. Language impacts the way you think a lot in a big way. I said I like to process things on the show. I feel like I should start creating a dictionary now to you know unlock my next level of thinking. I, I'll try that and get back to you. I think I'm, I might have just stumbled onto something big there. That'd be cool. But language impacts how you think. You know how there's that stereotype? A lot of people say it's racist. Of course they do. Everything is racist. The stereotype that Asians are better at math than other people. And why is that a stereotype? Well, stereotypes are typically that way for a reason. Not always, but sometimes. And with this one, there's a reason behind it. A lot of Asians speak Chinese, Japanese, and Korean. And those languages are all much more mathematically based languages than English is. So if you speak one of those languages, it literally changes how you think and gives you a leg up and it gives you an advantage with math. It's so cool. I need to learn Chinese now, right? And knowing that language, it gives you a new framework to perceive the world and ideas. Another example that you might be more familiar with and listeners to the show might be more familiar with is that Spanish is a very gendered language. Every word is male or female. It's built into their language. And you could imagine that changes how they think, saying every day thousands of times over male word, female word, male word, female word, male word, female word. That starts to you know stick into your head, that repetition just being hammered in. And then we see, we see that in real life. 
Spanish-speaking people are much more hesitant to accept the left's gender ideology in comparison with people who only speak English. Hey, I, I need to learn Spanish now, too. And so to tie all of this together, I told you all the way from the beginning of the show, and this is a very roundabout point, is that language is dreadfully important. And the left who wants to take it and twist it and say she when talking about a guy and say he when talking about a girl with all their tranny nonsense, we cannot give in to that. This is a battle worth fighting. The language is immensely important, immensely, and that it is one of the hills we should die on because when we give up that hill, We'll be giving up the truth and even our very ability to communicate and think. We'll just be giving that up. So we have to fight for the language. How's that for a roundabout point?